Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Acts, the ninth chapter, beginning in verse 32 and reading through verse 43. Hear now God's Word. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. At Joppa there was a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is translated Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and charitable deeds, which she did. But it happened in those days that she became sick and died. When they had washed her, they laid her in an upper room. And since Lydda was near Joppa, and the, and the disciples had heard that uh, Peter was there, they sent two men to him, imploring him not to delay in coming to them. Then Peter arose and went with them. And when he had come, they brought him to the upper room. And all the widows stood by him, weeping, showing the tunics and garments which Dorcas had made while she was with them. But Peter put them all out and knelt down and prayed. And turning to the body, he said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes. And when she saw Peter, she sat up. Then he gave her his hand and lifted her up. And when he had called the saints and widows, he presented her alive. And it became known throughout all Joppa. And many believed on the Lord. So it was that he stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. And thus far the reading of God's word and all God's people said. There was a spiritual tsunami on the day of Pentecost, and the waves of that are rippling through the region as we read through the book of Acts and through the world. In fact, they continue to this day. Luke has already told us of the multitudes of conversions, including Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles, and he has mentioned several individuals, including the lame man in the temple, uh, Simon, the Ethiopian eunuch, Saul of Tarsus, that's where we left our story last time, and now Saul was headed back to Tarsus, and he will remain there for about seven or eight years until... Barnabas retrieves him in Acts chapter 11. Peter is now back on the scene. We last heard of Peter when he spent two weeks with the new convert, Saul. He had remained in Jerusalem with the other apostles when the persecution had broken out immediately after the martyrdom of Stephen. And so then, remember, many Christians fled Jerusalem And they went to other towns and cities in the region, and right away we saw that they were boldly proclaiming the word. The last verse we read before today was Acts 9.31, which reads, Then the churches throughout all Judea, Galilee, and Samaria had peace and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit They were multiplied. N.T. Wright summarizes this. He says, One of the glories 
of Luke's writing is that he can take us in a couple of strides from the enormous, earth-shattering, history-changing moments like the conversion of, of Saul to a small, intimate scene, an upstairs room in a poor home filled with the knitting and sewing that had occupied the godly lady who has just died. And so we're getting the big picture, and then from time to time we get these smaller vignettes, these smaller scenes that are very personal, very intimate, and actually, as we're going to see, very encouraging or should be to us. We've seen several occasions where uh, Peter and the other apostles provided verification and validation of the work of the gospel. And so now Peter has left Jerusalem, and, and the text tells us that he is taking a tour of all the parts of the country. So he's left Jerusalem. He's going to go check things out, no doubt, and provide some great encouragement, some instruction for these young and growing new churches. God is also providing powerful credentials for Peter as he travels from place to place, and we're going to see that later he will need that. Luke refers to the believers who he uh, who he is visiting uh, as saints. And you'll recall that the Greek word which is translated saints simply means holy or to be set apart by God. In other words, saints are holy ones, that is, those, again, who God has called to be His peculiar people. These are God's people, and we are set apart from the world and are identified as being in union and communion with Christ. Jews, Samaritans, Gentiles, every tribe and tongue, or what we might call race, is united in Christ, called out of the world, united in Christ, and set apart unto God. We are brothers and sisters first and foremost. Later, Paul would write to the Corinthian church in chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified, that is, holy, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. And so the Bible uses the term saints for a group rather than as as an individual, which emphasizes the singular transformation that has taken place both relationally and positionally in Christ. We occupy a new place. We occupy a new position. So when I write to you frequently, I refer to you as the GCPC saints. That's who you are. So um, be sure to greet one another. Uh, St. Larry and St. Joel. You're all saints. You're all believers. You're all set apart in Christ. You occupy this glorious position in Christ. Now, let's look at the two stories we have here. Aeneas, Peter arrives in Lydda, and there he found a certain man named Aeneas. Lydda is about 20 miles northwest of Jerusalem and was the capital of one of the Judean districts. It's very likely, based upon our story, that Philip had been there 
and visited both uh, Lydda and Joppa. And in this place, Peter encounters a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden and paralyzed for eight years. And we're given this very brief account in verses 32 through 35. Now it came to pass, as Peter went through all the parts of the country, that he also came down to the saints who dwelt in Lydda. There he found a certain man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years and was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus the Christ heals you. Arise and make your bed. Then he arose immediately. So all who dwelt in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. His long eight-year illness was immediately and dramatically and thoroughly and completely reversed instantly. Like the lame man in the temple, he arose, he walked, he made his bed. So by the way, apparently, true Christians make their beds. The healing of Aeneas is reminiscent of the healing of another long paralyzed man, the account of which we can find in the Gospels, uh, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 5. On that occasion also, remember, when the man was dropped through the roof of the house by his friends, the the paralyzed man was told to rise up, to take up his bed, and to walk, just as Aeneas was here. Again, Peter makes it crystal clear that it is Jesus who is doing the healing, not Peter. Peter was reporting on what was happening. He was not doing it himself. That is, again, Jesus is doing the healing. It was not as if Jesus, upon leaving the world, had given the apostles a supply of his own power that they could use to heal the sick. However, uh, so in other words, it was Jesus himself in that room healing the sick man. However, not all the sick are healed when we speak the name of Christ. And, that, and this, that doesn't mean that if someone's not healed, that they're not godly. In Elijah's day, there were no doubt uh, other poor and godly widows but he was the only one, the only one, there was only one that he was sent to. Jesus tells us in Luke 4, But I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up for three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout all the land, but to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel at the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed except Naaman the Syrian. Raises questions, right? We all want to know. N.T. Wright addresses why some are healed and why some are not. There remain, he says, there remain mysteries attached to them, though as perhaps there are to all healings. Why is Peter called to this person who has just died and not to any one of the others? He's referring now to Tabitha or Dorcas. Uh, Dorcas could not have been the only follower of Jesus to have died in the first years of the movement. Why does Aeneas get healed rather than all the other disabled people in the area? 
Why do some people get called to new work by an inner prompting, others by an angelic visitor, and others again by an ordinary messenger coming from a neighboring town? If Luke had wanted to tell us that God keeps, excuse me, if Luke had wanted to tell us that God keeps people guessing, he couldn't have done it much better. I've thought about that many times. Think about how Jesus healed in the Gospels. Sometimes he spoke. He spoke from a distance. Sometimes they touched the hem of his garment. Sometimes he spit. He spit twice. He's God. He can do it however and whenever he wants to. Think of Job. God doesn't owe us an explanation. I believe we will see. I believe it will become clear. I believe we will praise him for all eternity when it all becomes clear, but we are little children and we can't see and know what he sees and knows. These are examples to all who trust that God will not allow our sickness to destroy us, knowing that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We rest in the fact that all of our afflictions, in all of our afflictions, he will help us. This is an example, this healing of Aeneas, of what C.S. Lewis called a miracle of reversal in which the effects of sin and the fall are reversed and a glimpse of the new creation is given. We're getting an eschatological view of what Jesus will ultimately do for all of creation. In the new heavens and the new earth, all of the effects of sin will be removed. Therefore, or before that can happen though we are told that our sins must be forgiven. Sin caused all this problem. And so the first thing that's essential is that our sins be forgiven and dealt with. This is why in a similar circumstance, Jesus asked in Luke 5, which is easier to say to you, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise up and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. So the gospel gives spiritual sight to the blind. Feeding 5,000 people pointed to the Jesus who is the bread of life. So the miracles of the Bible are signs. They're there to point us to greater truths. The healing of the lame is a sign that Jesus can, as Hebrews 12, 12 uh, 12 and 13 says, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated, but rather is healed. Every one of us is broken in many ways. I would remind you, even Aeneas, even Tabitha, the man who was uh, uh, raised up in the temple. Where are they now? They died. So these were temporary, momentary reprieves. Everyone who has had, hear this, everyone who has had their sins forgiven will be fully healed. Now let's look at Tabitha. Peter was in Joppa, the coastal town of Joppa, modern Joppa. A suburb is a suburb of Tel Aviv. It was a merchant city that had a port on the Mediterranean Sea. We are introduced to a woman named Tabitha, that's her Aramaic name, or the Greek equivalent, which was Dorcas. Both words mean gazelle. 
We glean from the text that she was a well-known woman, well-known for her good works, well-known for her acts of charity. It's a good thing to be known for. She was especially known as a seamstress, which is a great reminder of what we think of as ordinary kinds of work is considered by God or can be when employed in the right way as a means of good works. Tabitha had fallen ill and died. The believers in Joppa had heard that Peter was in Lydda, which he, which was about ten miles away, so two men were sent to retrieve him, and so they urged Peter not to delay in coming. So back in Joppa, in keeping with Jewish tradition, the Christian women were preparing Tabitha's body for burial. It says they had washed her and laid her in the upper, in, in an upper room. As we read the, the text, and we need to say, why did God preserve this story or these stories? They seem like little side stories. In a sense, they are. But again, God is allowing us to look and see some details, and we need to pay attention to the details. So what difference does it make that we're told that they had washed her body and laid her in the upper room? In his excellent book, uh, Accompany Them with Singing the Christian Funeral, Thomas Long cites a description of the custom of preparing the dead for burial that was first Jewish and then adopted by Christians. There were no professional funeral homes. So this is not an embalming. This is simply a preparing of the body for burial, which is going to be the occasion, of course, for them to inspect her very carefully and to know, frankly, that she is thoroughly dead. She's not just sleeping. The ritual is performed by the Shevra Kadish, or the Holy Society of those who have volunteered to take on this emotionally demanding task. The members of the society come into the presence of the dead body men to prepare a man, women to prepare a woman, and address the body by name, asking forgiveness for any indignity they may visit on it as they work. The body is washed twice. First, the practical washing in warm water, the fragile skin cleansed with washcloths, the hair combed, the nails cleaned, At this point, the body is treated almost as if it were still alive, as if it could feel the warm water. um, Only the part being washed is uncovered to view. While the body is being washed with warm water, those who are doing the washing begin to sing songs from Scripture. Then the sheet is removed for the final ritual washing. The body is flooded with cold water. It's not embalmed. It is dried and clothed, and a hood is put over the face. It is put in a pegged wood coffin. No nails are used so that the body in the box may return entirely to the earth. So perhaps something similar to this has happened to Tabitha. Having gone through that process, again, there's no doubt that she was, in fact, dead. We only have three other instances of the dead being raised so far, and these are recorded in the Gospels. 
So we're not really sure exactly what their expectations were in going to get Peter. Peter was known to have demonstrated miraculous powers, of course, in the name of Jesus, and this also suggests that miraculous power was not common. So we're given enough to help us imagine this emotionally charged scene. When he had come, they brought him to the upper room, and all the widows stood by him weeping, showing the tunics and the garments. I think of this as kind of our modern-day visitation. But they had, instead of a photo montage of Tabitha, like we do, uh, they had the things she had made, the works of her hands. She was apparently quite skilled. These garments. And and surely the question is, why would God take Tabitha, this godly woman who's so helpful to the poor, a gifted, humble woman? She seemed to be indispensable. And I was reminded of the alleged uh, report that Charles de Gaulle, the former French president, said the graveyards are full of indispensable men. Well, God's sovereign, and he removes us all, every last one of us, on his timetable. God recalls people to himself partly to teach the rest of us to depend on him. So Tabitha had been a glorious example in the Joppan church, but now her lifeless body is laid out in an upper room, so Peter clears the emotionally charged room leaving Peter alone with the body. He now does something that really seems kind of crazy, but which was in imitation of Jesus. Peter speaks to this dead body and he says, Tabitha, arise. This is similar to what Jesus said to Jairus' daughter in Mark chapter 5. Perhaps he spoke in Aramaic, as seems likely he would have, since she is identified uh, by name first as Tabitha, which is an Aramaic name, in which case he would have said, here's what's unclear, he says, Tabitha kumi, Uh, Jesus said, Talitha kumi, In fact, uh, these words are so similar that when some of the early scribes of the first century copied Mark 5.41, they wrote Tabitha instead of Talitha. So, little girl, come forth or rise up. Boom. Her eyes popped open. She takes a breath. She looks and sees Peter. Now remember, this is what Jesus is saying through Peter. In fact, unlike Jesus with Jairus' daughter, Peter had fallen on his knees and prayed, which was his appeal to Jesus. And by the way, when Jesus says... Uh, to any sinner who is dead in trespasses and sin, they always arise. They do so. There's no mistaking what has happened. So try to imagine what Peter himself must have felt when he saw Tabitha draw her first breath. 
opened her eyes and took his hand. The powerful implication of the resurrection of Jesus has just shown itself in this upper room. Well, you can't keep that to yourself. And so the very next thing Peter did was he called the saints and the widows. Just imagine that scene. Just a few moments before, weeping, sobbing, grieving. Miracles were exceedingly rare. Otherwise, they wouldn't have been miracles. Appearances of the Lord, such as to Stephen and to Paul, were even more rare. But the raising of the spiritually dead is happening all the time as it happened here. Tabitha was the only dead body brought back to life, but the miracle of her resurrection was the cause of a great many, we're told, who were spiritually dead being raised to life. And Jesus had done it. Pastor Robert Rayburn noted what Luke seems particularly interested in demonstrating in both cases, Aeneas and Tabitha, And what is key to his entire theology and message is that it was Jesus Christ himself who was at work in the ministry of Peter and the other apostles, and for that matter, in the ministry of Stephen and Philip. What these miracle accounts are intended to demonstrate, as so much of the history that Luke has already recorded, is, and this is the central point, is that Jesus Christ is alive and at work in the world. Not only was he not dead, he was not some absent figure, but he was present with his people as he had promised he would be. We're surrounded by people who live in a scientifically fatalistic system that has no room for the miraculous. There is no such thing, they say, But the book of Acts tells us of another world where God steps in and God changes things and He changes people. And when all appears to be lost, God converts the main opposition, Saul. He heals a lame man and He raises up a beloved saint. Jesus is in charge of the world. And he loves his bride, the church, and he loves to do the unexpected. Both of our scenes end by emphasizing the evangelistic effect of the miracles that Peter had performed. A great point is made of the fact that it was that it was to Jesus that the credit for the healings was given by everyone, and the result of the miracles was precisely that large numbers of people came to believe in Jesus. Everyone in Lydda and Sharon saw or heard about the lame, paralyzed man standing up and walking, and it says they turned to the Lord. And into the weeping at Joppa, he brought joy and gladness, and as a result, Luke tells us, Tabitha's resurrection, quote, became known throughout all Joppa and many Believed on the Lord. 
I want us to return here just at the close of this to make one other observation that I think is important and transitional to where we're going next, and that's to Peter. God was at work in Peter, too. We see him as this important figure here, right? And we, we see God at work in Aeneas and in and, and Tabitha and in their friends and family and the communities. But Peter, God's at work in Peter. He's been at work in Peter for a long time. And he's still at work in Peter. Peter's, Peter hasn't arrived yet. Remember, later we're going to find Peter's got some issues. And, and it's interesting to see in this story some little details that help us see how God is sanctifying Peter, making Peter more Christ-like, helping Peter see more clearly the mission. We're not aware of Peter ever repeating a miracle like this, this resurrection, so it seems that something else was going on here, preparing Peter for what was coming next. And so this powerful demonstration of the power of the gospel to raise the dead is a prelude to Peter's next encounter, which will be the conversion of a Gentile Roman soldier named Cornelius. The boundaries of God's kingdom are about to be blown wide open. Not only did Peter need reassurance, he's going to need all the credibility he can get with the Jewish Christians, the party of the circumcision in Jerusalem. We kind of think, again, that if Peter were coming to our church or if Paul were coming, one of the apostles were coming, we'd all be thrilled, excited. We've had 2,000 years to kind of figure out who they are. It's hard to imagine that people were opposing them, but they were. They were questioning them. Not so sure. Especially when they're, when a pastor or an elder or an apostle apparently is trying to introduce some new idea and change the way people have always done things. So, in Acts 11, 2 through 3, we read, And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went in to uncircumcised men and ate with them? Well, Peter will go on to relate to them the vision that he had while he was still in Joppa. That We'll read about that next time. Our last verse in today's text says that after the resurrection of Tabitha, this is an interesting verse because it's almost like, what? Why is that inspired scripture? It says, Peter stayed many days in Joppa with Simon, a tanner. It is not insignificant that Simon was a tanner or that his occupation is mentioned here. Jews widely thought of tanners as unclean because they were in constant contact with dead animals. Peter was apparently no longer troubled by Simon's occupation, though, as we will see in the next chapter, he still had some scruples left over from his Jewish upbringing. So that sets the scene for 
what comes next, which is going to be big, which is going to rock the world. Let's pray. Gracious Lord Jesus, thank you for your constant presence, your power, and your love. We are grateful, Holy Spirit, that you preserve these words for us, that we too might rejoice in the ongoing work of Jesus. And Father, we give you thanks for sending your Son and your Spirit to rescue us, to heal us, and to raise us up to new life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Acts began with the descent of the Holy Spirit, who who Jesus said that he would send uh, in his place. Peter made it very clear in his sermon on the day of Pentecost that it was Jesus that Jesus had sent his Spirit. It was Jesus who had presented who who uh, who was present by the Spirit, and Jesus who was calling the nations to himself. Throughout Acts, this is going to be the fundamental conviction of Luke's history. Jesus is present in the world by His Spirit. Jesus is present in the world by His Spirit. Pastor Robert Rayburn makes this point when he writes, And now in Peter's two miracles that we have just studied, we are reminded that whether or not one can see the risen Christ or His glory, Whether or not one can hear his voice, it is still Jesus present and working by his Holy Spirit. He is here, and he is there. He may be in heaven, but he's also on earth by his Spirit to speak and to act. If you want to know what Pentecost means and what these two miracles meant, what the book of Acts is all about, it is this. The Jesus who ascended to heaven and who sent the Holy Spirit in his place, is now at work in the world through that Holy Spirit. He said before he ascended to heaven that he would be with his disciples until the end of the age. We know this, of course, but then you and I don't know it far too much of the time. We don't live in the consciousness that the Lord is present to help us to provide for us, and to be sure, sometimes to correct us. We do not live our lives even when we imagine that we are completely alone. We do not live our lives alone. We are, you and I, never alone. Jesus is always with us by His Spirit. These great miracles are only dramatic, unusual once-for-all demonstrations of that tremendous fact, we are always, you and I, in the company of the Son of God. I have some really good news for you. Apparently, ordinary people are not ordinary to God. Jesus is here To see you. He is here to know you. To help you. To respond to your prayers. To love you. And to save you. We are not alone. We are not by ourselves. Every moment of every day, Jesus is here with His power, with His love, with His truth, 
and with his care. O God, our shield, protect us now as you have in the past from the deceptions of Satan. Cause us to cherish the blessings of your pure word as our fathers in the faith have delivered it to us. Give our leaders courage, wisdom, and zeal to proclaim the gospel faithfully. Give us the desire to support the work of your kingdom with the means you've provided. Send laborers out and give us your word. What a heritage you have given to your church that we have the gospel in all of its truth. Teach us to appreciate that godly persons were willing to sacrifice their lives for these treasures. Keep us in this truth and make us instruments for its preservation in generations to come. Arm us with the weapons of the gospel to defend the holy ground our fathers contended for. And keep us from yielding even the slightest particle of our faith. Be to us indeed our mighty fortress. May we possess and embrace your word, your sacraments, and your discipline. And most of all, may we as the church, as the true church, manifest your love. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. And we ask your blessings, Father, upon our meal, upon our feasting, our resting. And may you go with us now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. Amen.